Genesis 37, 1 through 11. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Thank you, Brianne. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, it feels like this story ought to start with something like that. It's like it's a, a notch up above Once Upon a Time. This is, this is one of those stories, just like Brian was saying. This is an epic story. This is a crazy story. This, everything that Joseph's going to go through, all, all the things that are going to happen to him, it's, it's almost hard to believe. And you just watch the whole story. You see that he's, he's this favorite son of his father, and he's got the, whatever that coat is with all the colors, like all these things that we kind of know this story, kind of gravitate. It's just... Just fascinating. And we see that because his father loved him more than them, his father's showing favoritism and the, the brothers developed this bitterness and this really turned into hatred, this jealousy that turned into hatred. So, so much so they, they're going to try to kill him. And, and then they decide, no, let's just sell him. Let's just get rid of him. And then you just keep following the story. It's got this sibling rivalry, it's got this hatred, it's got this plot to, to murder him, then they have this, this turn of events and he ends up in Egypt and then he gets, he gets the status of power in Potiphar's house and then he, that goes wrong and he gets put in prison and then he's forgotten in prison. All these things happen to him before he finally comes out in the very end of the story. It's just this, uh, Hollywood wishes they could write stories like this. This is an amazing story. And just, just like Brian said, I think that's great just to really lean into it. We're going to cover this for the next four weeks. And so at least once in the next four weeks, read the whole story. Start in 37, read through chapter 50. You might want to, you might want to put some gloves on when you read chapter 38, just, just so you'll know, like what Kai said. But read, that, read the story and get the whole picture of it because it's a fascinating story. But here's the deal with the story. There's a tendency for us to look at Joseph 
And to see his story develop and to be so inspired by his story that we start to think, man, I got, I got to be like Joseph. I, I got to, his faithfulness and his perseverance and all the things we see that he continues to encounter setback after setback and he just keeps on being faithful. And there's this inspiration element to the story. We're looking at him like, I want to be like this guy. This is a hero in the Old Testament that I need to be like. And when we start doing that, we, we start down this path to where it leads us to see these stories almost as if they're fables. Does that, does that make sense? We see these stories in the Old Testament, we're inspired by them, we're challenged by them, we wanna be like the people in the Old Testament, we wanna be like these heroes of the faith, and so we start to see them as if they're just giving us some good moral lessons for our life to apply to our life. And you see them all in this passage. You see this story and you see Jacob is showing favoritism to Joseph. And, and you go, man, if anybody should have figured that out, if anybody should have realized that that's a bad policy and a bad practice, it was Jacob. He experienced that. He experienced the, the brunt of that when he was born and him and Esau were twins and his mother loved him more than she loved Esau and his father loved Esau more than he loved Jacob. And, and he experienced the, the pain and the turmoil. If anybody ought to know, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't show favorites among your kids. It's this guy, but yet there he is showing favoritism. There he is giving him a robe of many colors and all the other guys got tan, right? Like, like there's just... It's, it's a lesson for us about parenting. Don't, don't play favorites with your kids, guys. Like that should be, should be standard. Maybe we need to say it's a lesson about parenting. Just, just, so, just so we're clear, we, we didn't really cover this in detail, but you know, Jacob has four, four wives, basically, at this point, and 12 children. And those four wives and those 12 children are basically always competing with each other and competing for the attention and affection and prominence with Jacob which another way to describe that would be the scariest environment imaginable. That's all you have to say, scariest environment imaginable. Like what in the world is going on? This is a recipe for disaster. And so you see it. You see Jacob just fueling the fire, playing favorites with his kids. And what, is, what, what happens with that? Sibling rivalry breaks out. And so it's a lesson for us about if you have a brother or you have a sister, how you should treat them and how you shouldn't treat them. And I know like... It's kind of an extreme lesson when you look at this because none of you guys have, none of you have sold your brother yet. Like you've contemplated it probably and you've thought, is that an eBay thing or a Craigslist thing? You're trying to figure that out, but you haven't gone, but you look at this and you go, man, their jealousy took root in their heart, became bitterness and became hatred and it, and it played out in a horrible horrible fashion where they actually sold him into slavery and just sat down to eat afterwards. Like, no big deal. We got rid of that guy. The dreamer's gone. See what becomes of his dreams now. And so we look at that and we go, is this a lesson for us about how we should treat each other in the family, how siblings should respect each other and treat each other? And, and so we look at the story and we use it to make those kinds of points like, let's make a point here about how we should parent. Let's make a point here in the story, looking at the story about how we should, how you should treat your brother, young man. Let's make, let's make those kinds of points. Now, don't get me wrong. Those things aren't, it's not, a, it's not a wrong thing to look at these stories and learn those, those kinds of things from them. It's not wrong at all. It's just not, it's not the whole picture. 
When we start to look at our Bible as if it's a collection of fables with moral lessons, what we're doing is we're just not seeing the whole picture. Another way you can say that is moral lessons can be helpful, but they simply aren't enough. Moral lessons that we can see in the scripture of how these people are treating each other, what they should do and what they shouldn't do, that can be really, really helpful to us, but it'll never be enough. It'll never be enough to rescue us. It'll never be enough to change our hearts. We can tell each other that we need to be more like these people in the Bible over and over and over. We need to aspire to that. We need to be inspired by it, but it'll never really help us. And, and so that's the problem of seeing these stories that way. That's the problem of seeing the story. When we see the story of Joseph, we start asking the question in the wrong way because what we're doing is we're saying, okay, where am I in the story? And we all kind of think that we're Joseph. Well, that's who I'm going to be. I'm going to be the faithful, righteous, obedient, persevering, never giving up. That's who I want to be. But if we're honest, we're more like Jacob and the brothers. That, that's, that's really more likely who we are in the story if we're really, really honest with what's going on here. Now, when we see these moral lessons in here and we just focus in on that, we just, we just say, man, that's what, that's what we can learn from this. We're getting some good truth there. We're, we're even being faithful to the text in some ways, but we're missing the big picture and it's just not enough to really help us. And we, we come to that Honestly, we come to that in, in really, a, I think, a good place because here's what we know. We know the law is good. The Bible says the law is good. We know that the law, if everybody, let's, let's just say, if, if the world would just, everybody would just follow the law, if everybody would just obey the law, it'd be a pretty good place. I think a lot of our problems would go away if everybody would just keep the Ten Commandments, if everybody would just follow the law. And we know that the law is good. We know that if everybody would do it, this world would be a lot less conflict. So we know that on one side. On the other side, what we know is that sin is really, really bad. And I'm not just talking about sin in general. I'm talking about specifically in our culture. We see this culture and it's going south quickly. It's circling the drain. Like morality in our culture is, is, is almost non-existent. It's, it's we know that there's problems all around us. And so when we have this view that the law is good, if everybody just keep the law and sin and our culture is really, really bad, and we put those things together, that's what we want to start doing. We want to start prescribing law and prescribing morality to fix everything. And so it ends up with saying, well, we just need to vote the way the Bible tells us to vote, and that'll fix everything. We just need to put prayer back in schools, and that'll start fixing everything. And we start giving these answers that are not quite enough to the problems in our world, problems in our society. We see it and we go, man, this is, this is, law's good. If everybody would just do these things, if everybody just clean up their act and make good choices, then we would, we would have morality back. We'd have, we'd have a society that we can be proud of and we would escape some of these dangers. And so when we start seeing the whole world that way, then we start seeing all the individual parts of our lives the same way as well. We start seeing how we parent through this moral lens. And it's good and it's helpful, but it's not enough. You got kids and you're like, they need to, they need to do the right thing. They need to make good choices. I need to teach them how to make good choices. I need to teach them to stop doing bad things and start doing good things. And all those things are true, guys. We, we ought to be doing that. Let's just agree on that. That we ought to be working on our kids' behavior. 
And we ought to be teaching our kids how to make good choices and teaching our kids the difference between right and wrong and teaching our kids how to navigate through the craziness of our culture and the craziness of life. But if that's all we're doing, we're not really helping them. But it's easier, isn't it? If we're really honest, it's easier to just tell your kids, stop it. And you just tell them, stop it, and they don't stop it, so you tell them again, and they don't stop it, and then you tell them again louder, and if they don't stop it then, then you just yell, right? Like, whatever it takes, like, it's easier just to deal with the behavior. It's easier just to say, stop doing that thing. We had a road trip to Colorado several years ago, and there was a song at that time that was, had a catchy beat to it, and we just made up new words to the song. It was like, da-da-da, please stop. Done. That was not the words, but that became the theme of our whole trip to Colorado because everybody was saying that all the time. Please stop. Most time, not. We, we added the please just to make it a friendly song. It's just easier sometimes to go, stop. Don't do that thing. Instead of trying to open up their hearts and to show them that when they're doing that thing, it's because they really, really need a savior. It's because they really, really need grace. When we try to take the law, which is good, and use it in a way it's not intended to be used, we end up with morality focus. We end up with just moralism. And it, there's, it's just not helpful. It's not going to be enough for us. The law is good, but it was meant to show us that we're lawbreakers. The law is good. If everybody would keep it, that'd be great, but we won't. You won't keep it, I won't keep it, we won't keep it. We're not gonna do that. And so the law wasn't intended for that to happen. The law was intended to show us our need for a rescuer, our need for a savior to come and to die in our place because we are lawbreakers. So don't take the moral code and don't take the law and try to do something with it that it's not designed to do. We gotta point our kids to the gospel, not just work on their behavior. We gotta, we gotta see these stories and ask bigger questions than what we typically want to ask of these stories. It's moral lessons can be helpful, but they simply aren't enough. So what do you, what do, you do with that? Well, here's, here's what I think will really help us, is if we take, take that truth and put beside it this other truth that all the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus and to the gospel. And what it does is it gives us a completely different lens by which to see the Old Testament, by which to see the Bible. This is not a fable book. It's not a collection of stories with good moral lessons in the end. It is one story telling us about the greatness of God and what he has done to rescue and redeem a people that had ran, run away from him. That's what the story of the Bible is. And so when we, when we understand the gospel and then we understand this truth that all the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus and to the gospel, it gives us a lens by which we can understand and really apply these stories. And because it's bigger than moral lessons, there's really good news in that. When it's just a moral lesson and we don't match up and we don't measure up, we don't fit, we don't, we don't do it like Joseph all the time, then there's not much good news for us. But when we see it pointing to Jesus, when we see it pointing to the gospel, good news just floods into the story because we see it as much bigger than what we originally thought. And we say this all the time. We, we've said this throughout Genesis. We've, Kai preached a sermon on Noah and the flood and the ark, and, and he talked about typology and how in all the Old Testament you have these shadows pointing to Jesus. You have these glimpses 
uh, this type of Christ in the Old Testament. Joseph gives us this typology, this type of Jesus. But I, I want you to see why we say that. I want you to, I want to kind of peel back the curtain a little bit more and help you understand why we know this is true. Because how you interpret the Old Testament should be determined by how the New Testament writers interpreted the Old Testament. Does that make sense? The, the people that are most qualified to help us understand the Old Testament are the people who wrote the New Testament because they were inspired by the Holy Spirit and they were closer to the events, they were closer to the whole thing. So they, what they say about the Old Testament should really carry a lot of weight with us. They say this story is about this and that should really make a lot of sense. We should really pay attention that the New Testament writer inspired by the Holy Spirit said this about the Old Testament. But let me take it one step further. What Jesus said about the Old Testament should carry the most weight of all. So let me give you two pictures, two passages where Jesus said something very specific about the Old Testament that I think will really help us tonight, today. John 5, 46. Yeah, I just said tonight because it feels like it's already like time for supper. I don't know, the time change or something. John 5, 46. Jesus talking to the religious leaders and he says, hey, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he, Moses, wrote of me. We, that's a passage we kind of blow by a lot of times. If you believe Moses, you'd believe me. They believed Moses. They wanted to follow Moses. They don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. Hey, if you believe him, you should believe me because Moses was writing about me. What did Moses write? He wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. The first book of the Old Testament is Genesis. Moses wrote Genesis and Jesus says when Moses wrote Genesis, he was writing about him. That these stories in Genesis are pointing us to Jesus. Let me show you another place, even more clear. Luke 24, verse 25 through 27. Jesus is resurrected. He's, he joins these disciples that are walking to Emmaus. They're on the road to Emmaus, and he disguises himself miraculously. He doesn't, they, they can't tell who he is. They just think he's a stranger that joins their walk to Emmaus. And he walks up beside them. He sees that they're distressed. He sees they're sad. He's like, what's going on? What's, why are you so sad? And they're like, are you the only one that doesn't know what just happened? And they begin to tell Jesus what happened to Jesus, because they don't know he's Jesus. Following? And they tell, hey, this guy, Jesus, he was, we thought he was the Messiah, and then they killed him on a cross, and now we don't even know what to believe anymore, because now people are saying that the tomb is empty, and some people said he appeared to them, he's alive again. We don't even know what. We don't know what to believe. Jesus responds to that. They don't even know it's him yet, but here's how he responds. Verse 25, he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So right there he's saying, you should have seen this all along. But look at verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Moses, Genesis, first five books, all the prophets. When Jesus is gonna explain the gospel, he goes back to Genesis. He goes to Isaiah, he goes to Jeremiah, he says all this Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. So here's, here's what happens for us. When we get that picture, when we get that truth that all the Old Testament's pointing to Jesus, it gives us a lens so that we can really understand the Old Testament. It gives us something to lay down on the story and all of a sudden we can understand it. We can figure it out. Let me give you an example. We know the story, David and Goliath. It's a great story. We love that story. David's such a great hero. He's this little shepherd boy. He can't even fit into the armor. 
And so he said, I'll fight the, I'll fight the giant, nine foot tall, battle tested, hero of battles. I'll fight him. I'll go out there. And he goes get some rocks from a creek. He gets a slingshot and he goes and faces down the giant and he defeats the giant. And we love that story. It's an amazing story. And we look at that story and go, man, I want to be like David. I want to face the giants. I want to tackle all the enemies. But you take this all the Old Testament is pointing us to Jesus lens and lay it on top of that story. And then you go, oh wait, that's, I don't think that's what that's about. I don't think I'm David in this story. Do you remember who else is in the story? There's those Israelites that are supposed to be fighting the Philistines, but because Goliath challenged them and they're all scared, they know they can't be Goliath, that they hide in their tents every single day. And in the story, when David goes out and slays the giant, when he kills Goliath, he turns around and all those Israelites that have been hiding in their tent, that victory becomes theirs that day. And they get the victory even though they did nothing to earn it. They were too scared to even fight. You take a gospel lens on that story and you look at that and go, oh, now I know I'm the Israelites. I wanted to be David, but I am not even good enough to be a shepherd boy. Jesus, David's this pointing us to Jesus and Jesus took on the, the giant, the ultimate giant of sin and death. And he defeated that giant for us. When he died on the cross and came out of the grave, he defeated sin and death on our behalf. And then he turns around and gives that victory to you and to me, even though we did absolutely nothing to earn that. We didn't play a part in that at all. Oh, all the Old Testament points us to Jesus. All of this, these stories are not just moral lessons and I, that we can learn from, but they're pointing us to Jesus. And so we, we gravitate, we got this lens. I, I think what it does for us, it really unlocks the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that we, we ignore the truth of the, of the story and the, the elements of the story. We embrace the story for what it is, but then we always look to see how it's pointing us to a bigger reality and a more important reality. And that's, that, that's where we really begin to understand this. And I know that some of you are going, yeah, but can't, isn't there something I can learn from the story? and I can put it into my life tomorrow? Like, isn't there that in the Bible too? Isn't, aren't, aren't the lessons still a part of it? I know some of you really love lessons. It's a big part. Like, you, man, you love lessons. And so isn't there something here that tomorrow will make sense? And I knew that you would ask that question. I, I knew you did. I just, I just, man, I just, that's the kind of intuition I have. And so I, I, wanted to, I wanted to pull out one lesson and I think we can all learn from this story. And here it is. Obedience doesn't come with a guarantee. Oh, sorry, you thought it was going to be a happy lesson. <laughs> no. I think that's the lesson. Like if we really want to grab a hold of a lesson from Joseph's story and apply it to our life tomorrow and every day, that's the lesson that this whole story tells us. Obedience doesn't come with any guarantees may not work. Success may not follow your obedience. You may not get the promotion. You may get the opposite of that. Obedience, like, this is not just a lesson from Joseph's story. It's a lesson from the Bible. You remember the, that time the disciples, they, with Jesus, they had just finished a full day of ministry and Jesus said, you know what I need to do? I need to go up and pray. You guys go get in a boat and go across the lake and I'll, I'll meet up with you later. What did they do? They obeyed him. They paid attention. 
And they went and got in the boat and they went across the lake. Jesus went up to pray. Guess what happened when they obeyed him? A storm came that was so bad they all thought they were gonna die. They all thought they were gonna drown. Jesus had to walk on water out there to rescue them. Why? Because they had just done exactly what he said. They just obeyed him. As much as you don't like to hear it, as much as for whatever, we just don't like this concept, this is a biblical truth and it's seen all throughout Joseph's story. Our obedience, it's right and it's good and it's necessary, but it doesn't come with any kind of guarantees. Joseph obeyed and his brothers hated him. Joseph obeyed and his brothers plotted to kill him. Joseph obeyed and was faithful and his brothers betrayed him, rejected him and sold him into slavery. And then Joseph found himself in Potiphar's house and he, he obeyed. And he was falsely accused of something he didn't do. He, he obeyed and he ended up in prison. And guess what he did in a prison? He obeyed and he was faithful. And guess what happened? He was forgotten for years. I mean, yeah, spoiler alert, it works out in the end. But man, there's a lot of obedience with no reward along the way. And, and it's just like some, for some of us, it's like we have this, we have this justice mindset and the story of Joseph is, is amazing, but man, if you are really bent towards justice, you may not like this story because you want some justice to come along the way and it's just, you gotta wait a long time. And even then, it's probably not even satisfying if you really love the justice. Some of us, we want justice and we want this to work out and we think if I obey and if I'm faithful, it should work out for me. And guess what? When it doesn't, we start pointing fingers. God, why would you do this to me? All I did was obey. Why would you let this happen to me? Maybe, maybe God's path for us often includes suffering. God's path for our lives often, maybe this is true, it often includes suffering. And, and here, let me be honest with you. I said often just because I didn't think I could say always and you would still listen. But the Bible seems to think that it's, seems to indicate it's always. What Jesus say? Hey, guess what? In this world, trouble. You're going to have lots of trouble. I'll be with you. I've overcome it. But you're going to have trouble. They persecuted me, so they're, get, they're definitely going to persecute you. I, I just, I worry that some of you are looking at me right now and you're, you're kind of nodding your head like, yes, right, obedience doesn't come with a guarantee, I know it. But then when your obedience doesn't lead to success, you're going to throw your hands up. Whoa, what? How in the world? I love what God's doing in our church right now on so many different levels. And one of the really cool things to see is this, this I don't even know what to call it, but there's this movement in our church towards the, the orphan. There's a movement in our church towards foster kids. There's a movement in our church towards adoption that is just really, really cool to see. And maybe it's the coolest to see because Ryan and Kai and I didn't, didn't come up with that plan. Like it's just what God is doing here. 
And I didn't even ask any of our people that are going through that or have gone through that process because I was just so confident that I, I didn't feel like I needed to ask them. But if you asked them about their story, I think you would hear these words, obedience. God just called us to do it. We just decided to do it. We didn't know how it was going to work out. We just decided to obey. I think you would hear faithfulness. I think you would hear steadfastness. I, hear, I think you'd hear all these things that we see in this moral lesson about Joseph. And I'm confident you would also hear this. Man, was this hard. <laughs> Maybe another way to say it, I'm confident that none of them would say, and it's been so easy since we decided to take that step of obedience. Smooth sailing. Yellow brick road. Now, we, we know some of their stories. We know our obedience doesn't come with a guarantee. We gotta get that truth and plan it in our minds and our hearts. So our obedience can sometimes be costly. It can sometimes be super painful. And it'll still be worth it. It'll still be right. When my kids were little, I used to teach them if you obey, you go the right way. It was something I, I wanted to plant in their heads so they would remember it so it rhymes, right? So if you obey, you go the right way. I want them to know that. I, but we need to teach our kids, if you obey, you go the right way, but that doesn't mean it'll be easy. That doesn't mean the problems are gonna just disappear. That doesn't mean it'll even work out. You may lose some friendships. You may lose some popularity. You may lose some things along the way. If you obey and live according to this standard, it may cost you, but it'll still be the right way. It'll still be the right path. Our obedience doesn't come with a guarantee. And if, if, you're, if you're still tracking with me a little bit, let me, just ex let me stretch all of our theology a little bit further. You remember in the story, Genesis 15, that's when... God established his covenant with Abraham, formally established it. In 12, he kind of says, here's what I'm going to do for you. In 15, he formally established it. I think Shibley preached that for us where God slaughtered the animals and put them, uh, half of the animal on this side and half on this side. And then God passed through, symbolically passed through to say, I'm going I'm to keep this covenant with you. And so he's making these promises to Abraham about their relationship and how he's going to be his God. And he's going to watch out for him. He's going to guide him and lead him. Look at what he says Genesis 15, verse 13, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. Another word for that is slaves. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. <laughs> Stop and think about this for a second. God says, hey, Abraham, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bless you and make you a great nation. And, and all of your descendants, they're going to go to Egypt and they're going to suffer there for 400 years. That's not God saying this because it happened later and he's got to spin it back under control. This is God saying this is going to happen because God's going to orchestrate the events so that it will happen so that everything that's happening in Genesis 37 is because this was God's plan. That God's plan for his people for some unknown reason. I'm not going to stand up here and act like I know. His plan for some unknown reason for, for them to suffer for 400 years before he delivers them out of that. Abraham, here's some good news. Suffering. Affliction. 
400 years. It's often God's plan for us to go through that. It strengthens us. It builds us. It makes us more like Christ. But let's stop being so surprised when it happens. All right, we need some good news, don't we? Yes, we do. If you didn't say yes, let me say it for you. What is, what, is this, what is this story really about? It's not just some inspiration for our life tomorrow. And even what we did pull out to learn from, we don't really like. What is this, like, what is this story about? Well, here, here it is. The story of Joseph is good news because Joseph points us to Jesus. That's what we really need today, guys. That's what we need every single week. This story about Joseph is really good news because Joseph is pointing us to Jesus. All the Old Testament points us to Jesus and Joseph's story is no different. Everything about his story points us to Jesus. If you, if you think about Joseph, he's one of the few people in the Bible, I think Daniel and Joseph are these two people in the Bible where we never see them make a mistake. Not that they didn't make mistakes, it just doesn't highlight that for us. We see Moses and we see uh, Abraham, we see all the mistakes of the other people, but these two guys, we don't see a mistake. And, and one of the reasons that we don't see the mistakes of Joseph and even the things that may look like mistakes are not talked about that way, one of the reasons is because Joseph is being set against all the other characters in the story. His righteousness is being put on display so that we can see how different he is from his other brothers. His obedience to his father is being highlighted because the other sons didn't care what their father thought. They, they didn't care so much that they're willing to sell their brother and tell their dad a lie that he died. And so this Joseph's story is kind of highlighting this, this plight, this, this journey that he's on because it's designed, big picture, to point us to Jesus. Joseph was beloved by his father, and he was obedient to his father's will. He was hated and rejected by his brothers. They thought he died. They made up a story. His dad thought he died. He rejected he was sold as a slave. He was falsely accused and he was unjustly punished for things he didn't do. But in the end, he's gonna be elevated from this place of suffering to a powerful throne. And in, in, in the result of that, he's gonna rescue the people that rejected him. Who does that sound like? He's pointing us to the greatest hero of all time. He's pointing us to Jesus. Who who came to rescue us and was rejected. He came to live among us and die in our place and we're the ones who killed him. The people that he came to save are the ones who turned their backs, rejected him, hated him, and, and falsely accused him. And then Joseph, we all, like the story's made to think that we thought he died, right? That was what his father was supposed to think. Jesus did die. He didn't just take a risk. He died in order to rescue the ones who betrayed him, in order to rescue the ones who rejected him, in order to rescue the ones who were killing him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the good news of the story. That's the good news for every single one of us. Here's what that means. When you look at the story, you go, yep, now I know I'm not Joseph. 
Wish I was, that'd be cool. Like to have that coat, but that's not who I am. And all of a sudden, there's hope. That means that there's hope for every single one of us. If you had to raise your hand and say, how many of you are a bad parent? Man, I made so many mistakes parenting, I don't even want to talk about it. There's hope for every single one of us. There's hope for every single one of us to say, man, we're not very good at this whole husband-wife thing. We're not good spouses. There's hope for us. There's hope for all of us that are not good siblings. Don't treat our siblings the way we should. There's hope for every single one of us because this story's about Jesus, it's not about us. There's hope for you if you're not a good son or, or a good daughter, you're not obedient to your parents and you don't, you have trouble respecting them even in this age. There's hope for every single one of us. There's hope for every single one of us in this story because this story's not about us. It's about the one who came to rescue us from all of our failures. To pour out grace, to pour out forgiveness, to give us a standing with him, to give us a home with him forever and all eternity. Not because we earned it, not because we deserve it, but because Jesus Christ won the victory for us. And he saved all of us even though we rejected him. So let's look at this story for the next four weeks and let's lean into it and let's see all the inspirational things about it and let's, let's remember that the story is about Jesus and how great he's been to us. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for your story. Now, you've, you've given us your word, all these different stories coming together to tell us this one big story of how great you are, how heroic you are, and how you've rescued all of us. And God, I, I pray that you would help us to trust in that. Help us to trust in what you've done, not in what we can do. Help us to trust in your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness and your power and your redeeming work and not our abilities. And help us to trust you and follow you even when it doesn't seem like it's working out because we know that you're good. We know that you love us and we know that you give hope to all of us when we make all these mistakes. And God, help us to worship you in response to that truth. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.